God, we do come to you now like we do every week in need of your help during this time and every time, but during this time as we come to your word, we need your help. We need your spirit to move, to show us Christ, to lead us, to guide us, to reveal to us exactly what we need to know and what we need to see and who we need to see from your word this morning. We pray that you would magnify your name through the preaching of your word, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it's been said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I wonder what comes into your mind when you think about God. We've been studying the book of Genesis over the last several weeks here on Sunday morning, so maybe you think of God, the first thing that comes to your mind is God is the one who created all things, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plants, man, woman. Maybe you think of him as the God of covenant, the promise-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or maybe you think of the God who parted the Red Sea and rescued three Hebrew men from a fiery furnace and preserved Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe those things come to your mind. Maybe you, when you think of God, you think of things like anger and wrath. Maybe you think about God as a loving father or a friend in time of need. Maybe that's what comes to your mind first. Or maybe when you think about God, your mind immediately goes to Jesus. You think about how God became the man Jesus to live perfectly and die sacrificially and resurrect victoriously on behalf of sinners. Maybe that's where your mind goes first. Maybe you think about Jesus tossing the temple tables, speaking hard truth to the Pharisees and eating with tax collectors and sinners. Maybe the first thing you think is that great story of the miracle where Jesus feeds the 5,000 or where he walks on water or calms the storm or heals the sick or even raises the dead. Maybe those things come to your mind first. I'm sure that as you've been thinking, over, even over the last couple moments, that there are a lot of good and true things that have come into your mind as you think about God. We all think of God as the one who saves. At least most of us think of God as the one who saves, heals, guides us. But I wonder, when we think about God, I wonder how quickly we think of the God who cries. The God who mourns with those who mourn and weeps with those who weep. I wonder how quickly that would come into your mind as you think about God. Everybody cries, and Jesus, the God-man, is no exception. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see the tears of Jesus, and hopefully we're going to find some comfort in them. So on that note, if you have a Bible, you can start making your way to John's Gospel, John chapter 11, verses 28 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, the words, as always, should hopefully be on the screen behind me. John 11, 28 through 37. We are in the second sermon of a little miniature series entitled Comfort from Christ. Mackenzie took us through a passage a couple weeks ago that's online. If you haven't listened to it yet, go online, covbat.org, check it out. You will be encouraged, as I was. But as we walk through this passage today... I want to give you five comforting truths about God in suffering. Five comforting truths about God in suffering. 
So what comes into your mind when you think about God? That's a good question. Here's another good question. What comes into your mind when you think about God in times of suffering? That's a whole different question. And as we'll see in a moment, the people in this story are suffering. They're suffering pain, they're suffering loss, and the things that we learn about Jesus, the things we learn about how he comforts them in their suffering will hopefully, I trust, be an encouragement for us today. So with all that in mind, follow along as I read John 11, starting in verse 28. When she had said this, this is Martha, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Amen. We'll praise God for his word. As I already mentioned, I want to draw out five comforting truths about God in suffering from this passage. So we're going to dive right in. Number one, in suffering, God is still God. In suffering, God is still God. So this well-known story for most of us, it culminates... Spoiler alert, it does culminate with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But the whole story starts in verse 1 of chapter 11, and it culminates with verse 44. And we're looking at only a portion of it as far as what I just read. But context is important, so I want to highlight just a few things. Not every single verse, but we're going to start at verse 1. So in verse 1, we learn that a man named Lazarus is sick. In verse 2, we learn that That man who's sick, Lazarus, he's the brother of Mary and Martha. These are women that are referred to multiple times in other parts of the gospel accounts. And in distress, the sisters, they send word to Jesus, the miracle worker, that their brother is sick. So in verse 3, Lazarus is ill, but he's still alive. And their message to Jesus is, Lord, the one who you love is ill. He's sick. So in this moment, they refer to Jesus as who he is. He's the Lord of all the earth, and they're asking their Lord for a miracle. Verse 4 says that upon hearing this news, Jesus said this illness does not lead to death. So ultimately is what he's talking about. It's not going to lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We'll come back to verse 5 later. But in a nutshell, what ends up happening is Jesus, he waits around, He rolls up to the tomb where Jesus has been dead and buried for four days, and he raises this dead man back to life after four days. He calls him out of the grave, and verse 44 says, the man who had died came out. So simple, yet so supernatural there. The man who had died came out. 
And it's between Jesus' arrival and his miracle that we have our passage for today. And what I want us to see is that when suffering comes, it doesn't mean that God has stopped being God. It doesn't mean that God has taken his eye off the ball or that he has lost control of the steering wheel. It doesn't mean that he stopped caring. Mary and Martha knew this. So they call Jesus Lord when their brother is sick. And we can understand this, right? Like, their brother's not dead yet. They have hope. Jesus clearly has the power to heal him. So they go to the Lord and they ask him to do his thing. You're the Lord. You can do it. We're hoping in you. Heal our brother. He's their only hope. Their faith is in him to do the impossible. He's God. Should be no problem. So they love him, they worship him, their brother's sick, but they're, they're feeling okay because they have the Lord on their side. They're trusting in him. But then the healing doesn't come, and their brother dies. Jesus heard the news. He knew about this medical emergency, but he gets there late, and now their brother is dead. And it's at this point where you might start to think, okay, how are Mary and Martha going to respond now? The healing didn't come. Their Lord did not come through for them. Do they still believe that Jesus is the Lord, that he's still the same regardless of their circumstances? You can somewhat understand if they start to think that Jesus wasn't who they thought he was. He had the power to heal our brother, and he didn't. Maybe he doesn't care like we thought he did. Maybe their opinion is going to start to change. Maybe he wanted to help, but he couldn't because he's not as powerful as we thought. Maybe he doesn't have as much control as we thought. You can understand maybe these thoughts are going through their minds. Their brothers died, and in one sense, Jesus let it happen. It's kind of what it looks like. So how are they going to think of him now? Well, look at what Mary calls him in verse 32, post-Lazarus' death. Verse 32, Lord. She says, Lord, the same word that she used before Lazarus was dead. He's dead now. He's not coming back for all they know. He's gone. That's it. Game over. She's still calling him Lord. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's upset. She's hurt. She's suffering. She does not understand why Jesus let this happen. But at the end of the day, through the deepest possible pain, she recognizes that Jesus is still the Lord. He was God when her brother was alive, and now that her brother has died, he is still God. She still believes this. She still believes that even though Jesus didn't save her brother, she still believes that he could have. Doesn't understand why he didn't, but she still believes that he could have done it because he's the Lord. She knows he's still in control. He's still working. He's planning. He still cares. She, she knows this. We see the same thing happening in verse 34 when the people say, Lord, come and see. In Mary's suffering and in your suffering, God does still care. He's still God and he's still good. want to have that foundation as we walk through the rest of the passage. So that leads us right into point number two. In suffering, God sees our pain. In suffering, God sees our our pain. So in times of suffering, I wonder if you ever feel like God doesn't even know what you're going through. Or maybe he's aware of it, but he's not really seeing it, doesn't pay a ton of attention to it. His eyes on other stuff. 
other people, other situations. I've certainly felt this way. For instance, early last year, I began to experience some, some physical pain, and after a couple months and a lot of doctor's appointments, different medicines, I was not any better. And I remember last May, so right around this time, on my birthday, I was lying on the couch by myself that afternoon, and I just start crying, which I don't do a ton, but I did. I start crying. I'm talking like bawling my eyes out. I had this pain that was just not going away. It was starting to get to me. And I, so I, I'm literally verbally crying out to God. I'm like, God, don't you see me? I am stinking miserable here. Can't you see what I'm going through? Why are you doing this to me? That's what I'm asking God. Why won't you make it stop? I need you to see me. and I need you to help me. I didn't know what God was looking at. I know that God sees everything, but whatever God was looking at, I didn't feel like he could see me. I felt like he had turned a blind eye to my suffering. And now fast forward to over a year later, some of those problems are still here, and it still, for me, feels like at times God doesn't see what's going on. It can still feel like God is more interested in watching other people and helping other people than he is in watching and helping me. I wonder if you've felt that way before. But I want to remind you and me that God does see our pain. He's sympathetic to it, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. He saw Mary's pain too. In verse 32, Mary says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then verse 33, very simply, it just says, when Jesus saw her weeping, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Mary's weeping. The Jews who loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus are also weeping. And Jesus sees it, picks up on it, pays attention to it. He's not blind to it. He's not distracted. He sees their tears. And brothers and sisters, he sees your tears too. He sees you. He sees your sorrows. He sees your frustrations. It's like that song says, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he's watching me. If he's paying attention to the birds, he's paying attention to you. And when Jesus sees our suffering, he's not left unmoved. And that's what we're going to talk about in point number three, which will be a little bit longer. But the first two weren't that long, so it's okay. Point three is going to be a little longer. In suffering, God shows us his heart. In suffering, God shows us his heart. So it's here in verses 33 through 35, the heart of the passage. That's where we see the heart of Jesus most clearly. It's one thing to see someone's pain, which we know that Jesus does. It's another thing to sympathize with someone in their pain. In this story, Jesus sees Mary weeping. He sees others weeping. And then look at what happens next. Verse 33, when Jesus saw them weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. So in this moment, Jesus feels sadness over the death of his friend. He feels sorrow over the grief and the suffering that his other friends are feeling. And he's also angry, I think, at the reality of death. Just like us, Jesus is not a fan of death. It's not right it's not the way that things should be. It brings heartache. It brings sorrow. Jesus doesn't like it. And so Jesus is experiencing a lot of heavy emotions 
right now that we can relate to. Verse 34, Jesus says, where have you laid the body of Lazarus? Where is he buried? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35 simply says, Jesus wept. Charles Spurgeon once preached on verse 35, and he said this about that little verse. Jesus wept. I've often felt vexed with the man, whoever he was, who chopped up the New Testament into verses. He seems to have let the hatchet drop indiscriminately here and there. But I forgive him a great deal of blundering for his wisdom in letting these two words make a verse by themselves. Jesus wept. Shortest of verses in words, but where is there a longer one in sense? Add a word to the verse and it would be out of place. No, let it stand in solitary simplicity. He goes on, there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them. In other words, there is more to see in verse 35, Jesus wept, than any number of sermons will be able to pull out fully. But we're going to see what we can over the next few moments. So first, think about what brought Jesus to tears. We've already alluded to it a little bit. But it wasn't primarily his own pain and his own suffering. It was the pain and the suffering of those he loved. He sees others weeping, and he begins to weep. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland, he makes this observation. He writes, this is so good. He says, twice in the Gospels we are told that Jesus broke down and wept. And in neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over another. In one case, Jerusalem, and in the other, his deceased friend, Lazarus. What was his deepest anguish? The anguish of others. What drew his heart out to the point of tears? The tears of others. So of course it's okay to cry out of your own pain and suffering. But the two times that we find Jesus breaking down and weeping in the gospel accounts are when he's weeping, not for himself, but for those he loves, for others. His tears flow out of sorrow for others. It's through suffering in this moment, in this passage, that we see the heart of God. He's near to the brokenhearted, the Bible says. He feels deeply for others in their suffering. He knows that life in this fallen world can be downright hard, frustrating, sad. He knows that tears are appropriate in this life. He knows, we see it right here, Jesus knows what it's like to weep with those who weep. That's exactly what he's doing here. And because he knows that resurrection and joy in life are ultimately coming for his people, he can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Those two are not at odds with one another. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because we know the hope. Verse 31, I love this as well. Talks about the Jews trying to console Mary and comfort her. They follow her to where she goes to Jesus and falls at his feet. She begins to weep. And little does she know that her Lord would soon be weeping too. There's nothing that could have comforted Mary more in that moment. This is what I think. There's nothing that could have comforted Mary more in that moment than her Lord bearing his heart before her. 
Through his tears, Jesus was saying, I'm with you. I hurt for you. My heart breaks for you. I love you. We see here that Jesus is a friend who bears our sorrows. His tears reveal his compassion. And just think about it. Whenever life is hard for us, for any one of us, few things are more comforting than the tears of a friend, right? The comforting presence of a friend. When you get that awful diagnosis at the doctor's office, sure, you want things to be different. You'd rather not get the bad news. But what you really want in that moment is just for someone to be there with you. You want someone to show that they care and that they acknowledge your pain and suffering. When you're devastated after losing your job or after hearing no for the 200th time, we're not looking for you. We're going to go a different route. When that happens, you want someone to weep with you. When something unfathomably tragic happens, like the relative dies, takes uh, the accident, takes your father from you, whatever it is, what you want is someone to hold you tight in those moments, tell you they love you. I remember four years ago when, when my niece, I have one niece, she is... Um, Never mind, I'm not going to say that. She's cute, though. She was, uh, she was due on June 23rd, and uh, she came April 8th. She was a pound and eight ounces when she came, and I remember the very first time that I met her. My brother led me into the room where she was, and she's in one of those incubators. I could barely see her because of all of the tubes and wires and tape around her. And I stood there while my brother introduced me to his daughter, and I just lost it. I wasn't expecting to, but the floodgates just opened up. I was sad and scared and overwhelmed. My poor brother was all cried out at that point, but I was more than making up for it. I was crying enough for the both of us. The tears were flowing. We left the room in the hallway. I was trying to compose myself before I went back into the waiting room. And I've never been too embarrassed to cry or too tough to cry. I think that's a ridiculous thing anyway tough guys don't cry or big girls don't cry. That's not me. But I remember going into my niece's room and thinking, I don't want to cry. I want to be strong for my brother. I want to have it together so he doesn't fall apart. But what I realized is that my brother didn't, he didn't need me to be strong for him. He didn't need me to have it all together. My falling apart meant more for my brother than my put togetherness ever would have. My brokenness and my uncontrollable sobbing communicated that I care and that the sorrow was real. And so, very quickly, as we wrap up this point, number one, it's, it's okay to cry. And that may sound like a silly point to make, but it's never a bad thing for any of us to hear. It's okay to cry. And I realize that some of us cry more naturally than others, right? My dad cries during commercials. That's fine. Not everybody's like that. So we don't want to judge whether or not people care by how much crying they do. Like, we don't want to go down that route. That being said, let's not be too proud to cry. Let's not be too embarrassed to break down in front of other people, to show us, uh, to show them our heart. Our tears can comfort others as they get a window into our heart. That's how it was for Jesus. He wept. And it was through his tears that people saw his heart. 
they saw his love. Verse 36 says, right after, it's in verse 35, Jesus weeps. And then verse 36, they look at him and they say, see how he loved him. His tears were communicating more than potentially his words would have done in that very moment. Jesus weeps and the people say, what love? There's this great line in the movie Selma where Martin Luther King Jr. is trying to comfort a Mr. Lee whose 27-year-old grandson had died during a protest. And he simply says, Mr. Lee, God was the first to cry for your son. And I realize that it doesn't appear Jesus was the first to cry here, but we do know that he did cry. And he didn't cry because he was caught off guard or because he felt helpless. He cried because, like the Bible says in Matthew 11, he's gentle and lowly in heart. He's compassionate. He's kind. In our suffering, we want to know that someone cares. And we see in John 11 here that God himself cares. We see his heart. He loves us with an everlasting love. He weeps when we weep. Praise God that Jesus wept. All right, number four. So in in suffering, God shows us his heart. In suffering, God keeps secrets. God keeps secrets. Now, you may be thinking that doesn't sound very comforting. God keeping secrets, after all, what do they say? Secrets are no fun unless they're shared with everyone, right? God keeping secrets isn't fun, but it can be comforting. So let me share with you what I mean. So it seems that there are at least three different types of responses by people when they encounter suffering. not saying these are the only ones, but three are coming to mind. Some people... Believe in God, but then they stop. Suffering comes, they stop believing God. They think, if God exists, then this wouldn't be happening. So they stop believing. Some people believe in God, but they kind of stop talking to him. Give him the silent treatment, maybe. Maybe feel like he doesn't care anyway. They grow distant from God because they feel God is distant. They think, God's, God's out there somewhere. I do believe this, but he clearly doesn't care. Maybe he's not even listening. And still others keep believing, and rather than growing distant to God, they grow closer to God in times of suffering. They lean into him. Like the Israelites, they think, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I realize something's going, something different's going on in that context, but you get, you get the idea. We, we don't know what to do. We're suffering, but our eyes are on you. Same thing with the disciples. People are thinking things like, where else? Where else can we go, Lord? I know we're suffering, but where else are we going to go? You got the words of eternal life. We have believed. We've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I know I'm suffering, but I'm clinging to the Lord because where else can I go? And we've seen in this passage that Mary and Martha are both that third type. Rather than running from Jesus, they literally go to him. They call him Lord. They're broken before him. And at the same time, they have questions, they have frustrations, which they express to Jesus. Martha in verse 21 and Mary in verse 34, they both say the first thing that it sounds like they said to Jesus was, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They believe that Jesus could help. They're still confident in this moment that if Jesus had been there in time, he had the power to save their brother's life. And so here's what they're saying to Jesus. They're saying, you could have stopped our brother from dying, but you didn't. 
Why? Why weren't you here to save him, Lord? And how many of us have said the same thing to the Lord, right? You could have, but you didn't. You can, but you're not. Why? What's going on? And Jesus doesn't really explain himself here. As we've seen, instead of explaining why, he simply weeps with them. He gives a little bit of an explanation, which we'll think about as we get ready to close in our last point. But it's not much of an explanation. The reality is that God doesn't tell us everything that we want to know, especially during suffering. We simply don't know all the reasons bad things happen. Mary and Martha didn't know all the reasons that their brother was dead, that Jesus didn't help. We don't fully know things like why shootings happen, why children get cancer, why global pandemics persist. We don't know exactly why these things are realities. Elizabeth Elliot had some of the same thoughts and questions. She was a missionary. She was the wife of Jim Elliot, who along with four other men was murdered on the mission field. She said these words that I think are really helpful and instructive for us and relatable for us. She said, when I stood by my shortwave radio in the jungle of Ecuador in 1956 and heard that my husband Jim Elliot was missing, God brought to mind the words of the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You can imagine that my response was not terribly spiritual. See, she's relatable. I was saying, but Lord, you're with me all the time. What I want is Jim. I want my husband. We've been married 27 months after waiting five and a half years. Five days later, I knew that Jim was dead. And God's presence with me was not Jim's presence. That was a terrible fact. God's presence didn't change the terrible fact that I was a widow. And I expected to be a widow until I died because I thought it was a miracle I got married in the first place. God's presence didn't change the fact of my widowhood. Jim's absence thrust me, forced me, hurried me to God, my hope and my only refuge. And I learned in that experience who God is in a way I could never have known otherwise. And so I can say to you that suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth. God is God. Well, I still want to go back and say, but Lord, what about that little child with spina bifida? What about those babies born terribly handicapped with terrible suffering because their mothers were on cocaine or heroin or alcohol? What about my little Scotty dog, McDuff, who died of cancer at the age of six? What about all of that? And I can't answer your questions, or even my own, except in the words of Scripture. These words from the Apostle Paul, who knew the power of the cross of Jesus. And this is what he wrote from Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So we can all agree that all of us have questions when suffering comes, right? Things like, where is God? Why weren't you here? What are you doing? It's normal to ask those questions. And it's good to remember as well, as we're asking questions of God, that God is not going to share the whole picture with us. Whether we like it or not, he shares with us only what we need to know. We may think we need to know more, 
We can trust that God is giving us what we need to know. Knowing why you're suffering in a particular way isn't going to make the suffering stop. Mary, knowing why Jesus was late, was not going to bring her brother back. And honestly, I don't know that it really would have made her feel better either if she had a great answer to that question. At the end of the day, her brother is still dead. Whether Mary and Martha and others realized it or not, what she needed most was to know God, to trust his character, and to see his heart, all of which God gives us. Anything more may have just been too heavy and ultimately not very helpful. Corey Tim Boom, she says something similar in her book, The Hiding Place. She's survived the Holocaust. She's recounting being on a train with her father, and on the train she asks him about this word and what it means. It's related to a particular sin. So she asks her father, what is it? She writes in her book, he turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case off the floor, and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty, and I would be a pretty forefather who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. So a few words about that. First, as basic as it sounds, we can trust God in suffering. Whether the answers come or not, we can trust God and his character. He gives us some answers, but he keeps some things to himself. And he does this for our good. And just because, as a side note, just because we get older and wiser, it doesn't mean that we'll get more answers. It doesn't necessarily mean that we'll get more wise. Some secrets and mysteries will remain, but God has given us, does give us, will give us what we need. He's given us himself. We've seen his heart in John 11. And God keeping secrets also shows that there are more important things to God in our suffering than answering all of our questions. There are more important things to him than just answering all of our questions. God is more concerned with things other than, again, answering our questions. And we'll talk about one of them now as we move into our final point. So number five, in suffering, God saves his people. In suffering, God saves his people. So one of the purposes that God clearly has in suffering is to draw people to himself, to bear witness about himself, and to bring glory to himself. Jesus says as much multiple times in John 11. He says that what's happening with Lazarus is for the glory of God and for the faith of his people. We saw verse 4 earlier. It says, this illness does not lead to death. Now, of course, Lazarus does die, but ultimately, he and all of God's people will be raised to life. Lazarus was physically raised to life in that moment as well. He says it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God, Jesus, might be glorified through it. And then look at verse 5. This is wild to me. Jesus hears about how Lazarus is sick. He gets this news 
But instead of going to Lazarus, the sick man with urgency, he actually does the opposite. He, he slows down. Instead of picking up his feet with urgency, he slows down. Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why on earth would he do that? Because he loved them, he stayed two days longer? Jesus hears about this emergency, but instead of rushing to save the day, he decides to, to kind of chill. I mean, he's doing stuff, but he's taking it easy. Zero urgency at all. This would be considered grave neglect of duty if someone like a police officer or a firefighter did this, right? They get a 911 call, but instead of racing to the fire, they decide to take a nap, maybe read a book, maybe binge watch The Office, maybe do some other good stuff while this fire is raging. You'd say, how dare you to the firefighter, right? You have a responsibility. You're the only one who can stop this building from burning to the ground and save the people inside, and you didn't even try. You didn't even try to get there in time. But here's the difference between a situation like that and the one in John 11. Firefighters are heroes, and we praise God for them. They're not Jesus. Jesus has power. Jesus has a plan. In verse 14, Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. I'm glad I didn't get there in time. Jesus knew that raising Lazarus from the dead would lead to deeper faith in those who witnessed the miracle. It was going to help people believe Jesus has a plan to save his people. Eventually, as we know, Jesus does raise Lazarus from the dead, but even before he does, people are strengthened in their belief. Verse 26, there's the testimony. Again, the Jews say, see how he loved him. And then verse 37, kind of the other side of the coin, has some people asking, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They have questions, legitimate questions. But Lazarus has died, the sisters have mourned, in order that God might be glorified and that God's people might come to faith and grow in that faith. You got people seeing the heart of Jesus that they would not have been able to see had he gotten there in time to save Lazarus. They wouldn't have seen it in the same way. Verse 45 says as much. Many of the Jews who did come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. He's saving his people. He's giving faith to his people in suffering. So here's what we have. People suffer, God does a miracle, and people respond by trusting Christ. I realize it doesn't always work like this. God doesn't always perform the miracle that you want. Sometimes people walk away. But in this story, people suffer, God raises the dead, and people trust Christ. It's a picture of what happens in the gospel, right? Jesus suffers and dies. Jesus himself, the Son of God, suffers and dies. Three days later, he walks right out of the tomb, and every single day, more and more people, praise God, are putting their faith in this Jesus. It's in suffering, and ultimately, in the suffering of Christ, that God is saving his people. And even as we continue to weep in this life, just as Jesus did, we can be sure that joy is coming in the morning. 
Maybe not tomorrow morning, but big picture in the morning. Joy is coming, and one day God's people will weep no more. Listen to Revelation 21 as we close. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for John chapter 11, all that's contained in it. We thank you for Jesus who wept, showing us his heart of compassion and kindness, deeply sympathizing with others. God, we thank you that he loved and sympathized with others so much that he came to earth and lived and died and rose again on our behalf, in our place, for our sins, so that we could be forgiven and set free. And God, we rejoice that one day you will wipe away our tears and there will be nothing for us but gladness in you and in your people forever. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.